Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Taking account of these virtually irreconcilable points of view, aware that constitutional law must govern a society whose different members sincerely hold directly opposing views. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court is full of blockbuster cases these days, but this week had more blockbuster news from the court. After nearly 28 years on the bench, 83-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer announced that he is stepping down at the end of the term, assuming that his successor has been confirmed. And President Joe Biden on Thursday repeated his pledge to nominate a black woman to replace him. Joining me to discuss Breyer's announcement is SCOTUS Blog's publisher, Tom Goldstein. Tom, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. So the news that Breyer is going to retire after this term, that wasn't a surprise really to anyone. No, I think there was a general understanding and assumption that Justice Breyer, who as you said, has served for a very long time and before that was on the Court of Appeals and is in his 80s, uh, would be paying close attention to the calendar. And what we mean by that is that he would be really aware if he wanted his successor to be relatively progressive, that would mean nominated by a Democratic president and confirmed by a Democratic Senate. Well, the clock could be ticking because we have that now, but we might not have it after the midterm elections later this year. But speaking of calendars, you know, John Paul Stevens and David Souter announced their retirements in the spring. Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Kennedy announced theirs in the summer, right after the end of the term. Were you surprised that we got this retirement announcement from Justice Breyer in January, with with several months left before the end of the term? Well, not that surprised, because there is this premium now on making sure that the entire process is done. And if the first nominee gets rejected, gets done twice by the end of the year. And that just wasn't as true in the previous example. So it was a it was very tactical about it, I'd say. And do you have a sense, actually, I've had some questions about this at the remarks at the White House on Thursday, the president said he wanted to try to nominate someone by the end of February. It didn't say exactly how long before the confirmation hearings, although Chuck Schumer said that they would move relatively quickly. There's still a while between, you know, when potentially someone could be confirmed and the end of the term. Like, how exactly is that going to play out? I feel like we're a little bit in kind of uncharted territory. Oh, yeah, we could have this weird situation where someone could be confirmed but there wouldn't be an empty seat. Right, exactly. Like, so, what, are you, what are they confirming yeah, this person for? Yeah, exactly. He's in there literally measuring the drapes. And Justice Breyer's like, I'm not done yet. Yeah, that's definitely true. So the way that this works is the president can nominate and the Senate can indeed confirm, but the president wouldn't sign the official commission and the new justice wouldn't get sworn in. So there would be a justice in waiting uh, to take the seat the day after the end of the term and the last decisions come out, or maybe, maybe even the end of the day. Just sort of sitting there. Come on, Steve, let's go get that truck packed. Yeah, sitting in the on-deck circle, ready to step in 
ready to take some pitches, uh, but really wouldn't have anything to do because all of the argued cases would already be set for decision uh, by a court that includes Justice Breyer. And certainly preferable, I think, probably from the timing standpoint of a new justice than some of the other recent new justices who've come on while the new term was ongoing or had just begun. You know, here's your pile of cert petitions. Here are the cases that are going to be argued next week. Not exactly a relaxing start to the new term, the new job. Yeah, it's actually a, a, a huge benefit if a justice doesn't have to literally hit the ground running by showing up one day and having to be at oral arguments two days later. This is a real opportunity to kind of get your feet under you, learn about the process, learn about the cases that are coming up. And that assumes, of course, that there is a confirmation uh, by June, uh, which in this political environment is an ambitious assumption. But uh, given the current democratic control, uh, I, I would say that, and, and the president's commitment to, to move this pretty quickly in terms of getting a nominee within a month, I think they've got a good shot at it. So let's talk a little bit about the potential nominees. There's Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was confirmed recently to the D.C. Circuit. She's a former public defender, among other things. There's Leandra Kruger, who is a California Supreme Court justice, has been there now for several years, but is still only 44 years old. And then a somewhat late entrant to the field, J. Michelle Childs, who has the support, the strong support, of House Majority Whip James Clyburn, who says that she would have the support of two Republican senators from South Carolina, but is also 55, going on 56. She'll be 56 in March. Um, is there anybody else that you think is is really on the short list? Well, you know, it's always ambitious to say what the short list is when we don't get consulted about it. There are a couple of other Biden judges who've been uh, put onto the courts of appeals, but none of them have the profile of the three people that you've picked. And I do think that Leandra Kruger and Ketanji Brown-Jackson stand kind of head and shoulders above the rest in terms of being known quantities, their qualifications, and their ages. So what do you think the president said at the remarks at the White House on Thursday that he hadn't made a decision yet, he was going to consult with leaders from both parties, read their cases. What do you think the Biden administration is thinking about as they make this decision? So the first thing that they're thinking about is getting somebody confirmed. Uh, Because they are going to start from the presumption that they're going to have several very qualified options. So getting somebody confirmed. And that means the first thing that they're going to think is we just got Ketanji Brown-Jackson through the Senate. Uh, She got a couple of Republican votes. But we know at the very least, presumably, that absent some great surprise, that the Democratic senators will stick with her and then she'll get through. So they've got that one kind of bird in the hand. And so that's a good feeling for them, I think, to know that they've got somebody they'd be excited to have, who they think is very qualified and uh, who can get through the process without any problem. Then they're going to spend the month between now and the end of February figuring out if there's somebody that they like better and believe that they can get confirmed. And to my mind, that's really, okay, this is the time we get to study Leandra Kruger and we get to do the FBI background check because Ketanji Brown-Jackson has been vetted in the federal system. You know, she just went through the process, including the entire FBI process. But Leandra Kruger, who was her highest position in the U.S. government, was the deputy solicitor general. She hasn't had to be confirmed for anything. I don't even know that she had to have a, a security clearance ever. 
So she is, uh, there's just a higher risk profile there. Now there's the upside that she is, you know, six to seven years younger, and that is a real thing. She is incredibly respected from her time in the Department of Justice, but I bet that's what they're weighing. And with great respect for the judge, uh, who's 55 years old, a child, I just don't see them needing to go to someone who is 11 years older than Leandra Kruger. So I think it's a question of, do they just feel very, end up feeling very, very comfortable with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, or does Leandra Kruger impress them enough that the seven years and their study of her background makes them confident that she would get through anyway? I will say that even the most conservative Democratic senators have not voted against any Biden nominee uh, yet. And so I don't think they have huge worries. It's just whether there is a surprise in someone's background. They're, they're, they're going to be able to get somebody through the Senate on ideological grounds because they aren't thinking about somebody who's hyper-liberal to begin with. So the president says he wants to nominate somebody by the end of February. So between now and the end of February, assuming that, that he does, in fact, take that long, are we mostly just going to be hearing a lot of rumors? Like, I th- Do things go relatively quiet in terms of the public-facing part of the process? Well, it's really up to the White House. If they want to send trial balloons, they could. But the White House's perspective is they know who the shortlist is. It's very short. They know everybody else knows who the shortlist is. And so they don't really have to send up trial balloons. They need to figure out what it is they want to do. So, yeah, I wouldn't really trust anything in the way of rumors. When the president decides, the president will announce it. There's not going to be some big lag. And so if you hear, oh, they're going to put somebody on and there is an announcement tomorrow, that almost negates the rumor to begin with because they have no reason to hold it back. They want to put it out there as soon as they can and move the process forward because they'll look efficient and competent. So, you know, I I think that there are some dark horse candidates. The list, I would be shocked if it expands because they have a great set of candidates. They they don't have to reach. and, you know, we'll, they're, they're going to vet them. I think they'll vet in total probably five people. I would bet he would interview three people. Uh, but there'll be this, this, this calculus about Katanji Brown-Jackson and having been confirmed will we'll sit there. And I would say that she's the default and it'll be a question of whether they find somebody who displaces her. So I want to turn back from talking about potential successors to Justice Breyer to talking about Justice Breyer, or more specifically, I want to talk about the justices talking about Justice Breyer. The Supreme Court on Thursday released statements by all eight of the sitting justices and two of the retired justices about Justice Breyer. And I urge people, if they haven't already read them to go and read them. Um, some of them were funny. You know, the Chief Justice John Roberts talked about how Justice Breyer was a reliable antidote to dead airtime at our lunches. And uh, there was a one about Justice Thomas that it wasn't intended to be funny, but Justice Thomas talked about uh, going with his wife to visit the Briars in New England. And I had this sort of mental picture of the Thomases rolling up to the Briars' house in New England in their RV. Were there any that stood out to you? Yeah, it is very funny because the Thomases do drive around the country in the RV, famously. I, I don't know, I thought that the chief 
they must feel all very comfortable with each other because the chief had a line about how Justice Breyer's hypotheticals have befuddled his colleagues and counsel alike for many years. And that's, there's just a lot of love there if you can say that and, and have not someone take offense at it. There are a lot of, uh, there's a general sense in those of his overall humanity. And I was struck by Justice Barrett saying, look, he tried to uh, persuade by exuberance that he wasn't there to tear anybody down, to be mean to anybody. He was there really to, you know, never give up, never surrender uh, if he really thought that he was right. And, and I do have the sense that across a huge number of issues where he found himself increasingly in the minority as the court became more conservative, he still always believed. I'm sure he believed in the Texas abortion case. I'm sure he believed in many, many others. And that kind of exuberance is probably, you know, what turned around, for example, the Affordable Care Act case and got them to a 5-4 win instead of a 5-4 loss. But the complete humanity of the guy, his, you know, incredibly broad interests that he would be talking about old movies and French literature and knock-knock jokes, you, you do get a sense that he was even more of a character with his colleagues than we realized. Yeah, I, I think it was Justice Byron White who said that every time the court gets a new justice, it becomes a new court or something like that. And what he meant by that was that there were only nine, there's only nine of them. It's so almost like a family. And so then when you, you lose a justice and you get a new justice, it's like swapping out a new family member. And so you really did get a sense from these statements, you know, a much better sense of what Breyer was like behind the curtain and how they relate to each other, you know, even sort of the different writing styles in, in each statement. You know, Justice David Souters was in a sort of, you know, Yankee minimalism, <laughs> two sentence long statement. Um, it, it was really, it was really a treat to read. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think if anybody had the chance to see Justice Breyer's remarks with the president, that was peak Breyer. Oh, my goodness. On the rostrum, just musing about democracy and Thomas Jefferson and everything and talking about talking to students. And just you can tell he's not he's not retiring because he's out of energy. Uh, and I would expect to see, you know, Steve Breyer being having a real public intellectual life after retirement and giving lots of lectures and doing lots of trips and those sorts of things. You haven't, you haven't heard the last of him. No, he said he was he, he indicated in his letter to the president that he's going to be sitting uh, on the Court of Appeals. So you could, if you're arguing in the First Circuit, not not just you, Tom, specifically, but you lawyers, you, you could potentially get a panel that included both Steve Breyer and David Souter. That would that would be quite a panel. Tom Goldstein, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Always. Well, why should it always imagine you made a hairbrush in the shape of a grape? Uh, That was it. It's called the grape hairbrush. Uh, And uh, that's it. I mean, that's so weird that I guess that people would pick it up. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.